All right, well, I'm glad you're back here. I'm glad you're uh, with us as we continue to walk through the book uh, of Ephesians, letter to the Ephesians. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warn you ahead of time, the backdrop has been set, right? If you've been here the last few weeks, you know what we've been talking about. If not, you can always go back and listen. Chances are you probably won't, so let me give you just a, a thumbnail sketch of where we've been. Uh, you'll remember that the first three chapters in Ephesians kind of set the backdrop on which everything else is going to be painted. It's, it's where kind of the nature of God and the nature of our relationship with God is laid out in such a way that it gives context to everything else that's talked about. Um, there's, uh, there's talk of God's grace, of, of us being chosen, uh, of, of God's grace uh, being a thing that does not require us to act any certain way, that it's not because of ourselves, but just because God is love and God has chosen us and intended us, and that is good news for us. And we talked about how uh, that grace has kind of erased the lines between us. All the ways that we like to organize ourselves and separate ourselves have been removed uh, by this grace and by God. And then uh, you'll remember last week we talked about um, that the first implication of this is that we are actually all one body. And, And if you weren't here last week, I really do encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, because it's this idea that uh, not only are we not just individuals like we very often act, and as we as especially Americans are, I actually heard a, a, a podcast this week that talked about this certain way they have of measuring uh, individualism and how like, you know, the U.S. is like way past any other country as a culture. It's, it's a big, strong part of who we are. And not only are we not just individuals, but it's even more than just saying, oh, we're on the same team, we're part of the same flock or something to say we are part of the same body. To say we're part of the same body is to say that uh, your well-being is my well-being. Not that it's just related or it might affect me, but it is mine. Like we are the same body. We don't get to separate ourselves out from each other. And if we really view each other in that way, that has a lot of consequences, right? And as, as the book of Ephesians gets into these ethical exhortations, a lot of do this and don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Act like this, don't act like that. That's a lot of what's coming. And so, um, but it's all against this backdrop that's been painted. So let, let's go ahead and read the scripture again, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and warn you um, that uh, as Ephesians moves into this, this uh, unpacking of how we should act in this world, it starts meddling a little bit. So just go ahead and be ready for that, because it's going to happen. Uh, it's, it's the less fun part of the book, but it's uh, equally as important. Uh, it says this. Uh, This is chapter 4, verse 25, and we're going to go through chapter 5, verse 2. Therefore, after you have gotten rid of lying, each of you must tell the truth to your neighbor, because we are parts of each other in the same body. Be angry without sinning. That's not a command. That's a description, by the way. It's not like, hey, go be angry. But it's a confession that we will have anger, right? Be angry without sinning. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Don't provide an opportunity for the devil. Thieves should no longer steal. Instead, they should go to work using their hands to do good so that they will have something to share with whoever is in need. Don't let any foul words come out of your mouth. Only say what is helpful when it is needed for building up the community so that it benefits those who hear what you say. Don't make the Holy Spirit of God unhappy. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Put aside all bitterness losing your temper, anger, shouting, and slander, along with every other evil. Be kind, compassionate, and forgiving to each other in the same way God forgave you in Christ. 
Therefore, imitate God like dearly loved children. Live your life with love, following the example of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. He was a sacrificial offering that smelled sweet to God. So as we get into the, the, these kind of ethical exhortations and then the book begins to commence telling us how to behave, we have to be a little bit careful and you have to tread lightly. Whenever you get into something that feels just like a list of rules, uh, you know, it's easy to make some mistakes. And it's always a little bit dangerous to preach from the pulpit or music stand on the floor or whatever we have about, like, do this and don't do that. It's always a little bit dangerous for a couple reasons. First, um, no one likes being told what to do, right? And as the father of a two-year-old, I can tell you that's hardwired. That just comes with us. We are, all have that from the beginning. No one likes to be told what to do. In fact, many of us are wired in such a way that as soon as you tell us what not to do, that's the first thing we really want to do. It's like me telling you, don't think about a pink elephant, right? Secondly, whenever you have the audacity to claim how we live matters, what we do matters as people of faith, uh, certain segments of the church and our faith tradition will begin to throw a flag and yell about talking about works-based righteousness. And they will say, you are compromising God's grace. You are saying that we are earning something with God. You can't do that. But I'm convinced that we need to be able to hold two things simultaneously that we are often told that we cannot. Or at least I was told this a lot. In the one hand, we must hold on to the idea that God's grace is real. That there's nothing we can do, and we say this each week, there's nothing we can do to make God love us any more or any less than God already does. God's love is without condition. God's grace is real. We are chosen. We are adopted. We are intended. We are loved without condition. We must hold that in one hand. And in the other hand of the same body, we must own that our doing cannot be separated from our being. Our doing cannot be separated from our being. This becoming something new means to behave in some new ways for some new reasons. Who we are and what we do cannot be separated from each other. Otherwise, what does it really mean to become something new? I'm convinced, uh, to use some of the words of, of Dallas Willard, I think it was, who said this, I'm convinced that God is interested in changing the product and not just swapping out the barcode. We're intended to be something different, and that has implications. Whenever you become something new, it changes the way you relate and act in the world. It wasn't that I'd never had any other kind of relationship before Sarah. But with Sarah, I became something new and acted accordingly. I became a husband, right? We were married. And this new way of being had major implications for the way I behaved in the world. And I don't just mean that I ceased dating other people. I did. I'm sure disappointing countless others that I was off the market. But, uh, but the nature of relationships changed for me. It was something new. All of my previous relationships, both of my previous relationships, there was always this lens of everything being temporary. I'm not sure if you ever had dating relationships where, and you felt like this, where I always felt like I was kind of performing in some way. 
There was this built-in timer that I was trying to avoid and not accelerate, right? Any argument or annoyance or a date that didn't go great or uh, any realization that she might have for better options that are out there could mean the end of the relationship on any given time, right? It changed how honest I was with people, how comfortable I could actually get with someone, whether or not I could let my guard down, right? The nature of the relationship was different because of it. To become a husband for me was very freeing because to become a husband was to view this other person with permanence and that changes everything. Who I became changed how I acted in the world. I stopped performing and started relating. I began to work off the assumption that even if we got into a fight or had a struggle, which you know happens one every five or six years in our marriage because it's so strong and I'm a preacher. But even when we have those kind of arguments, I know we're still going to be there. I know it's just temporary. I know we'll get to the other side of it. Right? It fundamentally changed the way I related to Sarah and to everyone else. Because who we are, how we identify ourselves, and how we are in the world, how we act in the world, cannot be separated. What you do matters. Now, I'm not trying to give you performance anxiety about your faith, right? You still have grace. You will fail to live up to who you feel like you called to be, are called to be. You will require forgiveness. You will require God's patience, all of the above, and it is offered to you freely. It's good news. But the who of you and the how of you are still inextricably tied together. And Ephesians acts as this conversation about this truth. It's an elongated if-then argument. If we are truly saved by grace, then there is no more separation between us. If the dividing line has been erased, then we are one body. If we are all one body, then, and that's where we come in now. What we're talking about now is the then of that statement. If we are all one body, then... And it starts off in what I thought was a really strange way as I tried to pull this apart. I don't know that I've ever passed, uh, preached on this passage before. Because it starts off on this whole unpacking of the if-then, of if we are one body, then, with, with telling us not to lie. And functionally, not to lie to ourselves. Don't lie because we're all one body. Don't lie to yourself. Felt a little weird to begin with this to-do list, quote-unquote, with a request to stop lying. Out of all the ethical exhortations you can make, why stop lying? I mean, when I think about lying, I think of someone like knowingly saying an untruth to protect themselves or make themselves look better to gain something in this world. And obviously it happens. We're all very aware that it happens. Um, But quite honestly, it doesn't seem like a big enough issue to make the top of the list. Why start here? But then the more I thought about it, and the more I kind of unpacked the idea, I realized that To live in an untruth, to lie, can be found at the heart of a lot of other things. Uh, One example I had of this where I found myself uh, talking this through is when uh, I've been trying to teach my kids some about their own behavior. I don't want to tell on anyone of my children from the pulpit that's a, a rude thing to do. So let's say hypothetically one of my children was told by a classmate uh, last year that tests were a lot easier if you just kept the answers within sight while you were taking the test. And they talked about it all week before the test, and they convinced several members of the class, including hypothetically, maybe one of my kids would have been uh, convinced of this. Um, And in fairness, that is not a lie. Tests are much easier 
if you have the answers in front of you, I've been told. And hypothetically, if this child then took this airtight logic and put it into practice, and if hypothetically, as a little child, they were not as slick as they thought they were and they were caught, and then were shocked at how much trouble they got and uh, how much trouble they got for it because it was a purely logical thing to do, because you need the answers here and they're right there, why not just do that? And if they were deeply troubled and disturbed as a bona fide teacher's pet uh, to get in trouble, you might have on its face, you might have a hard time explaining why you can't do that. This asked what the answers were. These were the answers. I put these there. Why not? And I found the, the, the way that, that uh, hypothetically, uh, the way that I finally got through to this hypothetical child of a preacher is to demonstrate to them that this was a form of lying. Well, we're not supposed to lie, right? Right. Well, that, that's called cheating, and cheating is lying. Why? Well, because it's telling someone that you had an answer that you didn't have. That's saying something that's not true. That's a lie. And that is finally when, hypothetically, it clicked in their head that they weren't supposed to do this anymore. Now, granted, that same child could look back at their father and ask them if the same principle applied to being told that the TV ran out of batteries several times or that the candy, hypothetically, that he wanted to eat for himself had tree nuts in it, even though it technically didn't. But that's not the point, and what's with the third degree? Leave me alone. The point being that a, a lie, a living an untruth, is at the heart of a, much of what we do wrong, right? And perhaps this is why the writer starts this list with the idea of ending the lies, because if the truth is that we are saved by grace and the truth is that we are all one body, then each of the things that is listed next is rooted in a lie. Anger's not bad. It's going to happen. In fact, it seems to be a given here. But sleeping on anger is something we should not do. Why? Because there's an arbitrary rule. No. Because unreleased anger is pretty much always rooted in a lie about the other, other person's total guilt and our total innocence. Stealing is based in the lie that I deserve what others have and I want and I am entitled to. Words that belittle or tear down or destroy are rooted in a lie about my own ability to correctly and justly judge other human beings. Bitterness, losing your temper, slander, and every other evil is rooted in the lie that violates the truth of who we are and whose we are. You have to sacrifice the truth of grace and of being one body in order to do these things. They are all rooted in a lie. Because the truth is that it is all grace. The truth is that we are all part of one body. This is the truth. And before we can do anything else correctly, we have to abide in that truth. That's where we have to start from. That is the soil we root in if we want to produce the kind of fruit that God is interested in us producing. If and then, right? If the truth is that we are all one body, not just part of a group, but we are one body, then lying is a truly absurd thing to do. If we are all truly one body, then the truth is that stealing is only us neglecting parts of our own body that need the most help and I could be caring for with my own work. 
If we are one, one body, then holding on to anger is taking poison and waiting for someone outside of me to die. If we are one body, then saying or doing anything that does not build or encourage that body is an act of self-hatred, right? If we are one body saved by grace, then the only activities that make any sense at all are kindness, compassion, forgiveness, and love because everything else is a lie. Everything else denies the body that we share as one. Everything else is a lie. And if you take a good look around in this world, there's a lot of everything else. Jesus uh, is often quoted when he talks about having a narrow path, a narrow way to follow him. And I was always taught that that meant that not many people will say this certain prayer, not many people will believe exactly the right theology that makes them correct, and, and that's what the narrow path is. And I no longer really believe that's what it is. I think probably what is most narrow about following Jesus is this very idea. Because who among us really believes and practices this? And yet it is hard to imagine a truth that we more clearly need than this one right now in our world. Our lives are ordered by lies as defined by the book of Ephesians. Our lives have been ordered by things like partisan politics. Even a pandemic is somehow a partisan political issue. How we will explain that to our grandkids, I have no idea. And by the definitions that we're discussing today, clearly our politics, our partisan politics as we enact them right now are a lie. The premise for our partisan politics is anger, scapegoating, demonization, and total gracelessness. Our politics as they currently exist are fundamentally opposed to the truth that we share one body, that we are all called to live from. It would, it's hard for me to come up with a better example of what Christian faith is not than the politics as we do them today. Christians should absolutely categorically stand out like a sore thumb from our politics, and yet we're known for them. We pour gas on them. We dive in. We wrap ourselves in them. Imagine for a moment that the writer of Ephesians was an objective editor, someone who got to trim away what wasn't necessary or was objectionable. Imagine that the writer of Ephesians was this editor who would cut and keep based on the truths laid out in this book. What part of our favorite cable news shows, conservative or liberal, would not hit the floor when the writer of Ephesians got a chance to cut away? Which part of those shows or the rhetoric that we engage in actually comes from the truth of one body? Which part of it is not rooted fundamentally in a lie, in tightly held anger, in bitterness, in hot tempers, in slander, in other words, which part of our politics, left or right, is telling the truth that we are one body? I would argue very little of it, if any, is. I would argue that on average we have traded the good news and been discipled by the cable news, and it shows. What we are talking about here is a revolutionary idea. And again, imagine the writer of Ephesians as the editor for our church lives or our personal lives or our communal lives. What makes the cut and what hits the floor of the editing room? 
and we should act accordingly. We do not do this because we've been given a new set of arbitrary rules that we have to follow to be loved by God, or uh, we have to follow so we don't suffer some consequences. Remember, there is never anything arbitrary about love or the God who is love. We do this because of who we are. We do this because of all of Christ's life and teaching and miracles and death and resurrection flowed from this truth. We do this because we are a new creation. And being something new has consequences. If we are no different than anyone who doesn't believe this stuff, honestly, why are we here? We know the truth that we are saved by grace. We know the truth that we are born anew into one baptism, into one new body with one Lord. We know this truth. It is the truth about us and about who we are called to be. It is the truth about our world and our creation and our creator. Let's stop lying to ourselves. And instead, as the writer of Ephesians says, be kind. Be compassionate. Be forgiving to each other in the same way God forgave you in Christ. Imitate God like dearly beloved children. Live your life with love, following the example of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. God, we confess that this, uh, this truth is a hard one for us to hold. Uh, the water we swim in teaches us to think about ourselves and our world differently. The love that you have shown us, the grace that you have given us, the life to which you have called us are so foreign and so good. God, we, may, we pray that we might root ourselves in this truth, that this truth might be the place where we draw all of our nutrients, where we draw all of our strength and all of our inspiration. May we live in this world and produce things in this world that come from this place. Help us to stop lying to ourselves. May we be one body, one baptism, one Lord, one spirit, one God. Lord, we love you and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.